In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Widowson. Mark is a senior lecturer in psychotherapy and counseling at the University of Salford, the author of two books on transactional analysis, and a UKCP registered psychotherapist. He is also an active psychotherapy researcher, and in 2017, he was awarded the International Transactional Analysis Association Research Award in recognition of his research into the effectiveness of TA. In this conversation, we discuss the core concepts of the TA model, including how each of us has three basic elements to our personality, the parent, the child, and the adult, the benefits of TA compared with other forms of psychotherapy, and the situations in which it can be particularly effective, how many of us are unconsciously running on life scripts that we inherited in our first few years, and what can be done to re-script them to improve our quality of life, why it's vital to remember that everyone we meet is at the center of their own universe, and how this can benefit our own emotional well-being, and more. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Dr. Mark Widowson. Okay, Mark, welcome to the show. For anybody that doesn't know you and isn't aware of your work, could you tell us a bit about your background and how you first got interested in transactional analysis? Okay, this is going back a long way now. This is going back almost 30 years. So um, originally, when I first started out, I was working in mental health, um, in community mental health, doing a lot of um, basically going out into the community. And it was my job to deal primarily with, with, with people who were psychotic, and it was a it was a bit of a novel project at the time. It was when back in the days when the big massive mental hospitals closed down, and so they booted out all these people who'd been in there for years uh, into the community and expect them to be able to cope. And not many of them were, were able to do so. Um, and you know, it was you know I had virtually no training, and you know I was just sort of out there. It's pre-mobile phone days. You know, I was turning up on people's doorsteps and saying, "Come on, get your coat on. We're going out." Um, you know, it's like the, the naivety of youth was probably a good thing, really. But I was always aware of like one day I'm probably gonna say the wrong thing. And um and I was very aware that my skills were lacking. So I signed up and did a um a certificate in counseling skills. And about halfway through it, um one of the tutors did a, a workshop on on transactional analysis. Um and I spent most of the evening feeling a little bit slightly paranoid because it was as if my entire life was being explained to me um, in front of me, like all the every single model. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, and that's really stayed with me. I can still remember that evening. I can still remember what it felt like to have all these concepts that just explain so much of what was going on. Um, and that's really what what sort of got me into TA. So following on from that, I trained as a counsellor. And then after I finished that, then I, I trained as a, a, a TA psychotherapist. Brilliant, brilliant. So how would you describe TA to somebody that's never heard of it before? You know, what, how okay. do you... Yeah. Do you want all the basic concepts and stuff? Do you want me to just go? No, no, it? we'll get into that. But just as a, as a brief sort of, you know, oh. an, an introduction to how would you describe it? All right, TA is a um, is not just a psychotherapy; it's a sort of body of psychological theory, really, um, that's used in therapy. But it's also used in organisational development, in coaching settings, in educational development, and things like that. Um, it's it's a sort of body of theory that um, that helps people to understand what's going on on the inside for them, you know, their their own internal process. Um, and to, to make sense of that by thinking about their development, how they've grown up, what's influenced them, what messages they've picked up from the environment. But not only is it about looking at what goes on on the inside, it's about what happens in with people. And, and just some of the most inspiring concepts, I think, in TA are, are looking at interpersonal relationships. Now, one of the things that I think is great about TA is that we use everyday language well i say everyday language it was everyday language in the 1960s when ta was developed some of it's a little bit clunky now but it, it doesn't use long fancy jargon we just simple straightforward language to to explain concepts that's a really central principle in ta and um, we also use a lot of diagrams for things we like to be able to diagram it and so that you can what we do if we work in therapeutically in ta is we we, we work with clients and we help them understand what's going on for them, make sense of it. And we we develop a shared language for, for change. Very interesting. And where does the name transactional analysis actually come from? Well, what is it? Why the name TA? 
Well, originally it was developed as a, a method of group psychotherapy. And it was about the, the transactional analysis was analyzing the transactions between people, or in other words, the, the communication between people. So that, that's where the name came from. Gotcha. So the idea um, that was you know, that Eric Berner was the guy who, who first came up with TA, um, he identified that um, you know, people people operate from different positions and that we can sort of like infer someone's internal process from how they communicate and that the idea was that you could map out breaks and 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 um awkward points in communication and and diagram them so that's that's where it all started was about the analysis of of communication interesting interesting so you mentioned that whenever you first discovered this around 27 years ago that all these light bulbs went off and things clicked for you you know i'm just i'm just curious you know how has um understanding ta and its sort of principles improved your own quality of life like was there much of a difference in mark pre-ta and post-ta Oh yes, very much so. Um, one of the things that I love about TA, and I'm I'm getting excited now, I'm like me. What you can't tell is my feet are going like that on, <laughs> um, which is always a good sign. Is one of one of the great things about TA is that we we use these everyday language concepts that you can use straight away. Like you can you can make sense of it, and it's accessible, and straight away you can think about how you can do something different. Um, so one of the things that that I did is I started becoming very aware of what was happening in in relationships with people. Um, you know, I started to excuse me think about how I could improve the relationships, about clarity and communication. It helped me become more assertive. Um, I think it helped me become more caring. It helped me to ask for what I need. And, and rather than expecting other people to be able to mind read it, um, you know, I really gained a, a lot from it. So, and that's one of the values and, and you know, sort of real strengths of TA is this ability to, to have like concepts that have got a real intuitive appeal that you can use straight away to make changes in your life. I love that. I love that. Now, you're trained as an EMDR therapist as well, I believe. Um, I also wanted to ask, you know, what apart from you know its accessibility. What would you say the benefits of TA are as compared with other forms of psychotherapy out there? Okay. I mean, I'm I'm sort of of the view that a lot of therapies are pretty much equal. And so to me, the benefit of TA is if if the concepts make sense to you, if they click for you, then that's the one to use. So I, I think that whatever therapy you want you need to use is the one that you know makes sense, I suppose. Um, what I think that TA's got a, a real advantage over is that it helps people to develop um a sense of self-compassion for themselves. I mean, a lot of therapies do that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that TA has got the, the monopoly on that. But what I think it does is it helps us to understand how we came to be who we are today. So we take a sort of developmental lens um, and, and look at what happened to someone and how has this shaped who you are right now? That's one of the things I think we're really good at. But it's not only that. Is it's, it's also got a, a real interest in repetitive patterns and so if people find that they're getting caught in in scenarios with friends with family members with partners where they just it's like oh here we go again the same thing's happening over and over that ta is really good at helping people to identify exactly what it is that's going on and to figure out how they can do something different very interesting very interesting so what would you say the core elements um of this of this approach like what what's it what's it built upon i read in the introduction to your book that um there's elements of cbt here but also there's existential psychotherapy elements as well which i find is a not something that's usually brought together under one one umbrella you know so what's the what's the story there okay so so the, the background of ta is eric byrne um was was a, a psychoanalyst um originally so so he TA was was intended at first to be an extension of psychoanalysis. Um, what happened though is Eric Burns' application to join the San Francisco um, um, Institute of, of Psych Psychoanalysis was rejected twice. And I think on the second time he just went, "Oh, screw this! I'm going to go and do my own thing." Um, and actually, that's when the real innovation started happening. So it's got that sort of understanding from psychodynamic and psychoanalytic thinking about how our past shapes who we are 
and and how you know that that this this past stuff is all sort of like kind of recorded in our unconscious and how we operate and live that out on a day-to-day basis so that's a sort of psychoanalytic bit it was also developed during the 1960s when humanism was very much a a big influence in 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 the states and and you know this kind of um view that that human beings are are in a continual process of growth and development and healing and that's one of the core principles of TA is that people, you know, we believe that people are fundamentally good. And then, you know, anything that's that's a variation on that is due to what happened to them, which is very much a, a, an idea that, that we're starting to hear now within the whole mental health field. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. What happened to you that led you to develop and become this person who we see right now so tier was you know we, we we were there back in the in the 60s on this one um eric byrne also um like referenced kierkegaard the existential existentialist um author in some of his early works about about these sort of core preoccupations around death and about you know how we live our life and and how we're going to make our life meaningful and so the link with that was this idea of of, of life script or, or the sort of narrative that we have that we use to explain who we are, how the world is, what other people are, how we're going to relate to each other, how it's all going to end up. Um, so that's sort of woven in there. Um, and one of the concepts that I'm, I'm guessing I'll probably talk about in a little while is is that Eric Ben came with is the idea of this adult ego state. So this is this kind of like rational, logical part of us. And and one of the one of the problems that he believed was going on was that people pick up these sort of irrational ways of thinking. And so some of the ways of working are pretty much identical to what we'd see in CBT. And what's interesting is that Eric Byrne was developing TA you know, in California in the 1960s at pretty much the same time um, that Aaron Beck was developing cognitive therapy on the East Coast. So we're seeing these sort of parallel things happen. Um, yeah, interesting. Unfortunately, Eric Byrne died in, in you know, the early 70s, so I don't think he ever properly liked not to develop that side of things, but certainly a lot of TA people since have, have really picked up on this. So this is one of the things that I love about TA is that you've got all these different um, lenses that you can view it from. And, and I think that what one of its strengths as well is it, uh, it's a framework for integration of different types of psychotherapy. So you can take most types of psychotherapy and bring them into it. So you've already mentioned EMDR. So I, you know, I combine the two in my work regularly. Interesting. So I know you've done a lot of work on, uh, looking at TA and, you know, how it can help with trauma, for example. Um, in what situations is this approach particularly effective? Okay. So, um, I mean, certainly it's really useful for trauma. It's, it's quite interesting that a lot, you know, the whole field of trauma therapy over the past couple of years has got very excited about talking about parts. And the idea is that, you know, that people sort of fragment under extreme trauma, particularly in childhood, and that they sort of form like little separate parts of themselves. I mean, you know, we all have different parts. We all manifest different parts of ourselves in different situations. You know, I'm not the same person I am with my friends as I am with my mum, and that's just how it should be. You know, it doesn't mean that they're fake. It just means that they're different facets of who I am. And that the idea is that in trauma, that parts of us become hurt and sort of hidden away and it's a sort of protective thing. And TA has been talking about parts again since the 1960s. So we, we've been doing this. And I look at some of the, the latest trauma manuals and how they're working. And it's like kind of what, what I think we used to call inner child work. Well, that's a concept that TA came up with. You know, we've been doing this stuff for years. Um, so this, again, this development of self-compassion, sort of like, for example, looking at yourself, imagining yourself as that nine-year-old boy who, who was hurt, you know, and and having some kind of dialogue with him and saying, hey, you know what, you're going to be okay. This is the stuff we see in trauma therapy books now and said, we've been doing this for a long time. So T, I think, is really useful at, at healing that sort of healing childhood trauma. Um, my, my own research was, was was looking at the effectiveness of TA for depression, and a it works for that too. Um, there is a number of people have looked at TA for for anxiety and found that it has comparable effectiveness to, with, with other therapies. So these are the areas that we know that we've got some research evidence to show that it it's helpful for, or where we can you know look at other research and say, well, we're doing the same thing. Um, 
So those are the, the, the most obvious ones. The the other area where I'd say that TA is really, really helpful is helping people develop their relationships and improve their relationships. I think we do really, really well on that. Brilliant, brilliant. And I suppose that really leads me in, into the next question. Um, For such an effective approach that has such widespread application, why hasn't this been more widely adopted in the field? Like I, you know, we're for the past four years, we're all making psychology more accessible and we've explored all these different types of therapy. And I'm only really discovering this now and I'm thinking, why is this not more widely out there? You know, so why, why not? I think that one of the reasons for that is that TA has always been a little bit on the fringe. You know, that, that you know, we think about like Eric Byrne's story and, and how, um, you know, he was sort of like, took a step away from from psychoanalysis and was like in this sort of radical fringe in San Francisco. And and I think that TA draws in a lot of people who are outsiders, if I'm honest. Um, and and also one of the other things is that, you know, TA kind of like likes to carve its own way on things. You know, we're not that always to, always that keen on orthodoxy. So because of that, I think that what it has meant is that that historically that tier practitioners have not necessarily worked in universities and places like that. And so because of that, um, we've been a little bit slow on the uptake in developing research. And really, you know, all the changes that we're seeing in, in the whole field of psychotherapy, I think, over the past few years are, are being driven by research. So certain therapies such as CBT, you know, fair play to them. You know, they've done the research, they've been doing it for years and they've built up so much research that now it's really widely accepted and talked about. In TA, we were a bit slow on that one. Um, and I said, I think that's just about his, you know, historical developments of it. And um, so I think I think that's partly why we're sort of like not, not as, as out there as maybe we should be because I think we've got some really great things to offer. Interesting. I wonder, is that sort of like a chicken and the egg problem? Because people that are maybe drawn to CBT are more that sort of way of thinking anyway. Do you know what I mean? Very logical. Yeah. And the transactional analysis might be a bit more more out there, as you say. Um, Absolutely agree. So, yeah, th- th- let's start talking about, I suppose, the core concepts. And, you know, this this model of, you know, we've all got three people inside of us. Could you maybe tell us about what those three people are and maybe provide a brief sort of uh, overview of each, like an introduction? Okay. Okay, so so there, there are two main concepts that are at the heart of TA. One is ego states and one is life scripts. So I'll, I'll get that in so I can come on to the life scripts. One. Ego states is this idea that each each person has kind of like, you can, you can kind of subdivide their personality into three different parts, uh, parent, adult, and child. That's the basis of it. Um, you know, it, it, it may, it's got an intuitive appeal. You know, we all had a childhood. We all have a child self. We all remember what it was like for us as a child. We all remember what it was like was growing up. We all had a particular set of experiences, but we also all had parents. You know, some people might not have great ones, but they nevertheless had them. But the parent ego state is like a sort of um, collection of all the messages and everything that we picked up from the outside. So not just parents, um, school teachers, older siblings, um, relatives, nans, aunts, uncles, um, religious leaders, society and culture as a whole, anything that's come from outside, we carry around with us. And this is really quite important because I think this is the source of a lot of the shitty things that goes on in people's heads. You know, when people have this idea that they're not good enough or they don't look a certain way or people when they're giving themselves a hard time that in TA, we almost see that like the parent ego state is giving their child a bit of a kicking. Mm. So that's how we sort of understand um, self-criticism. The other ego state I've not mentioned yet, which I probably should have done, is the adult ego state. I'm doing these bit like this because in tier we draw them as three stacked circles. So I'm kind of like visually doing it in the air in between us. Um, so the adult ego state is the part of us that's, that's logical, rational, uh, but also is here and now. So it's very much centered in the here and now. It's present centered. It's, it's right now the conversation we're having right now. We're applying thought. We're thinking about it, what we're saying. We're trying to make sense of stuff. So that's that's the adult ego state. So we've got the child, which is a collection of all our past experiences, all our history, um, including the triumphs and pains of that. All those things that we picked up about ourselves as a kid, like you know, I've got this strong message that I'm rubbish at maths. You know, why is that? Am I really rubbish at maths? Or is it just that I wasn't really taught in a way that suited me? You know, I don't know, but I carry this belief with me everywhere I go. And, you know, it's like I'm in a situation where I have to 
like do some very basic mental arithmetic. Oh, no, I can't do that. Does that kind of make sense to you? I mean, it's a sort of like simple, you know, um, lighthearted example. I could give you plenty of examples on this. Um, so, you know, and like the parent ego state, you know, a lot of us have got that. Um, I can understand what I mean when you say, you know, those times when you open your mouth and your mother comes out. Yeah. And like that, that's what your parent ego state is. I I can tell you now that if I'm I'm cross, then I turn into my nan. Um, <laughs> I proper turn into, if I'm really cross, I turn into my nan and my accent changes. You know, suddenly wow. here I've got a really strong Sheffield accent that I kind of lost a little bit over the years because because uh, I've moved around the place. But um, but yeah, so if I'm cross, turn into my nan, and even use some of the same phrases that she uses, some of the same gestures. You know, my finger will be going like this. Um, you know, that's just pure parent ego state. It's so interesting. And if you think about it, you know, in your early years, you're literally just a sponge, just observing totally. everything that's going on around you. And totally. of course, you're going to internalize that and embody that, you know? And that's I mean, you know, we, we, you know, you look at like a, you know, David Attenborough program and look at nature programs, you know, birds or lots of animals might only have like a few days with their parents. And yet they pick up and repeat those behaviors and, you know, repeat them to their own kids. You know, so, you know, it's a survival mechanism is to, to, to have this kind of imprinting mechanism where we learn through observation and through inference. Now, another thing as well is that humans are social creatures and we've got to hold this right in the heart of it. You know, it's all really about survival. And one of the ways that we ensure survival is by making ourselves acceptable to others. And one of the ways that we do this is by making inferences about what they want from us. But of course, you know, I mean, this this was attachment theory, like John Bowlby and that have you know really taken this idea that, you know, it's better for a child to believe that they're bad than for them to believe that their parents are bad. Because if they believe their parents are bad, then they've got nothing. They've got no safety, no protection. And in TA, we really take this and we think about the vulnerability of the child and how, you know, a child has got this sort of a view of the world that's quite egocentric because they don't have the sort of insight and knowledge and capacity to think about excellent outside themselves so you know if a if a kid's being told off by their mom because their mom's not in a great mood and then they see their mom and dad arguing then the kids might likely to think ah oh, they're doing that because i've been naughty when actually maybe mom was grumpy because there was something going on between her and dad does it make sense to you totally totally and we develop at a young age, we develop strategies and patterns to sort of, um, I suppose, navigate the really complex sort of family dynamic, I suppose. Sure. And then at the time they're adaptive, but but we, we, we just keep repeating them through our life. And as we get older, they become maladaptive and can harm the rest of our relationships. Absolutely. And, and what you're talking about there leads me on to the sort of next tier concept of life script. So the idea is that, you know, when we're born, we're born with without a handbook of, of what, what all this is about, which I suppose like the sort of existential bit, you know, that we have to make meaning of it. We have to understand what does a person like me do in a world like this with people like them? And it's all about meaning. And so what we do, we know that, that from birth, infants are making drawing conclusions based that, and it's all about prediction, really. It's all about the ability to predict things because that allows us to survive. If we know what's going on, we can figure out what to do next. Um, and so, you know, we're learning, you know, am I, am I worthy of being looked after? If I cry, will someone come? If I'm hungry, will someone come? And, you know, if, if they don't, what happens over a period of time? Do we stop being hungry? Do we stop being bothered? Do we cry louder? You know, so what happens is people, you know, people develop these sort of like adaptive strategies, as, as you've highlighted, to kind of um, try and get the environment to meet their needs or as they think it. But also they're drawing conclusions about themselves and about other people. Are other people to be trusted? Will the people be there for me? Are other people kind? Are the people, uh, will the people trick me? You know, this kind of stuff. What about myself? You know, am I worthwhile? Am I inadequate? That's a really big one that a lot of people feel. You know, um, am I lovable? Um, you, know, you know, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm, I'm really aware of as I'm saying all this is, and I think this is not just parents, but like school teachers, you know, I have lost count of the number of people who have had like blocks in their in their adult life all because of um, some things that, that um, a school teacher said to them. 
that, that really defines their sense of self-esteem uh, growing up. So, you know, we, we sort of start getting a sense about, about ourselves and other people. And the idea is that we develop this sort of explanatory framework called life script. Um, that again, like you say, just gets repeated and carried forward into everyday life. Now, the thing about life script is that what it does is it shapes how we perceive things. So, it, and it also shapes how we interpret things. But, you know, it becomes a kind of like a self fulfilling prophecy. If you see what I mean, it's like if I believe that the world is bad and other people can't be trusted, then if I'm watching the news and see, you know, like there's some war going on somewhere, I'm going to see people are bad. Or, you know, it's like if I if if my phone gets stolen, then I will see other people can't be trusted. But I can forget about all the, the other half a dozen times I left my phone somewhere and somebody chased me down the street and said, excuse me, you've left your phone. Do you see what I mean? It's about what do we pay attention to? What do we notice? Um, how do we perceive reality? Do we interpret it right? Do we what do we remember as well? It's like with with depression and anxiety, what they do is they put a real negative slant on everything. So when when people are depressed or anxious, that what this this is the sort of pessimistic side of things, you know, um, oh, it's all gonna go terrible, it's all gonna go pear-shaped, it's all gonna be horrible. Um and so then that sort of puts people in a sort of negative frame of mind before they go somewhere or do something that then means that, you know, if there's the slightest problem with it, then they'll reinterpret it in that way. If that makes sense, you know, like a lot of people overthink stuff, you know, you've had a conversation with your friend, you were talking about something, your friend's looking out the window and seemed a bit disengaged. So we go away from anything. Ah, uh, I've upset them or they're not interested in me. They don't really like me anyway. As actually, it might be that our friend is thinking about um, the fact that there's a load of stuff going on at work and, you know, they're, they're worried that they might lose their job or maybe they had a fight with their partner or maybe their kids, are, you know, have got something going on with them. Or, you know, it can be any number of things. Maybe they've got a bad bag, you know, but that what we do is that we tell a story about what happens and that's going to be filtered through our experience and through our expectations of the world. Um, and then what we remember afterwards is coloured by this. I mean, all of this sort of stuff is backed up by psychology research. There's tons of research that shows about how about um, cognitive biases and so on, and and how and state dependent memory and all of this kind of stuff. So you know, these sorts of ideas that that we're talking about in TA are not fringe things. They're not things that are out there. They're things that are supported by um, by psychological science. It's it's such an unfortunate aspect of the human brain that you have this, you know, this concept of uh, life scripts, but then you pair that with something like confirmation bias and exactly. you go through your whole life trying to reinforce beliefs that you picked up from such a young age. And every experience is sort of an opportunity to reinforce that belief, whether it's, whether it's good or bad, you know, it sucks, doesn't it? It sucks. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, it's like, we've got to think about this. I mean, th these things have got an evolutionary advantage, haven't they? In, in some ways, I mean, they, they must have, it's like negativity as often, I often explain to clients, like, you know, we have a negativity bias, right? Um, and, you know, if we cast our mind back to 700,000 years ago, when we were all running around on the Rift Valley in Africa, it was a really good idea to have a negativity bias because it kept us alive. You know, our ancestors that noticed the bad stuff survived. The ones that didn't got eaten by the lion or whatever, or bitten by the snake or poisoned by the berries. The ones who paid attention to this stuff, they survived. So we've kind of like got our ancestors to, th to thank for the fact that we're all a little bit neurotic and, and prone to anxiety. But, but you know, the thing is, is that... Um, brains don't like to do very much. Again, we know this from neuroscience. Brains like to do as little as possible. It's energy conservation, you know, again, which is all about survival. And so that what we do is that we we sort of interpret things in a way that, that fits our predictions. Um, again, this is a really well-established phenomenon. But again, if your prediction is that... Um, you're worthless, other people are better than you, other people are not to be trusted, other people don't care for you anyway, and the world's a bad place, then that's how you're going to see things. And within tier, we also say that what you might do is that then might lead you into, into ways of being um, that elicit that from other people. 
you know, like a, a classic one of that is like people, um, if people are suspicious of others, you know, a little bit paranoid or something like that. You, know, you go into a social situation, you feel suspicious towards other people, then you're going to keep them at a distance and perhaps be a bit cold. Well, then other people are going to be a bit cold and distant back towards you, maybe even a little bit hostile. So you can go away and go, ah, see, I knew they didn't like me anyway. You know, it's like how, how we behave can can draw things out. Now, obviously, there are exceptions to this, but certainly, you know, I think most of us know if you're nice to people, then generally they'll be nice back. Exceptions, yes. So, you know, what we are and what we expect can really elicit certain patterns of behavior back from other people and, and change the interaction. 100%, 100%. And so in your TED Talk, Mark, um, which is well worth a watch for anybody that's watching this interview, um, you yeah. outlined... The airline seven cognitive biases. And I think one that just one that really jumps to mind for me that could save so much unnecessary suffering in your life is this idea of a fundamental attribution error. And we we assume malice on the behalf of other people when often it might just be something else, you know. So something I think that can prevent a huge amount of that is just giving people the benefit of the doubt when they do something wrong that they're not trying to hurt you or harm you it's just that they might have forgot or they might be busy or whatever you know absolutely absolutely i i i absolutely agree with everything that you've said there yeah i reckon that probably about 90 percent. this is not a scientific estimate this is just a sort of a guess about 90 percent of upset between people is completely unintentional <laughs> the person didn't intend us to hurt. Yeah. I mean, we've all done it, haven't we? You know, I, I can think of, you know, probably times within the last, I don't know, within the last week, you know, where I've done something to upset my husband or a friend or I don't mean to, but you know, we we all behave in ways, you know, sometimes we say things in a way that um is perhaps a little bit clumsy or we don't think about it, or you know, we don't return a call or something like that. You know, we didn't mean somebody to to be offended or hurt, but they were. Now, um, in that situation, you know, we're often a bit surprised by that, aren't we? You know, well, why, why are you crossing me? I didn't mean it like that. And what's happened in that situation is that the other person's interpreted our, our actions as hostile or intentional somehow. But of course, you know, it, it works the other way around as well. You know, how many times do we get upset or, you know, you know, get all, all spun out about something someone's done and take it really personally when the chances are it's probably got nothing to do with us anyway. You know, if somebody's if somebody's grumpy, you know, is it because they've they're pissed off with me, or is it just because the traffic was bad? Choose. Hundred percent. So, you know, obviously these these life scripts that we all have and we all carry, they have a they have a massive effect on our on our quality of life. And I think you mentioned your talk as well about how our narratives sort of have a massive impact on our mental health as well. How you can someone recognize what they're like how might a ta therapist help somebody recognize what their life scripts are you know that's obviously the first step to change them but how do, how do you first recognize what these might be how do they show up okay so one of the things that we're, we're doing in ta therapies we're kind of listening to the music behind the words if you understand what i mean is that we're making inferences about what implicit conclusions someone might have, have come to about themselves it's like okay so what i'm seeing what you're telling me about is this particular situation that you keep getting caught into so what beliefs might lead someone to behave in that way now when we say beliefs it's um i think it's probably i think a better phrase to to use is kind of implicit conclusions is that you know because i don't think these are necessarily consciously thought through at the time it's just that we infer and uh, we, we come to a conclusion about ourselves and other people when we're kids, often without any kind of thought at all. Um, so we're kind of looking at that. We, we, we'll talk with people about their history. We'll ask them, you know, what happened to you? Tell us, you know, just talk us through some of your life story. Um, and, and then we can kind of, you know, talk to them about the specific incidents maybe and go, okay, so what, what, what did you learn there? Um, another thing that that we we sometimes do in TA is we 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 ask people to, as we'd say, listen to the voices in their head. Now we're not talking about some kind of like psychotic hallucination. What we're really talking about here is internal dialogue or thought process. 
and we try and get people to externalize it. That's one of the great things about the parent adult child model is I think that it gives us a framework that helps people to put their internal dialogue or whatever garbage is going around in their head out there and think about it and start separating it out. Thinking about what am I thinking? How am I responding to that? You know, if we go into, um, you know, a situation where, where, where we're nervous and we tell ourselves that this is just going to go terrible, I don't know, say you have a presentation to do at work or something, and you're really nervous about it, and you're going to make a fool of yourself, then 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 you're going to get more and more psyched up about it and more and more, in, in, you know, nervous about it. And, <clears throat> you know, when people are nervous, you know, their throat gets dry, Um Mind you, when I'm talking a lot anyway and getting excited about stuff, um, you know, then the throat gets dry and then they stumble over their words um, and then they think everybody's looking at them. People are looking at them, but of course, people are probably thinking, oh, it's OK, this is really interesting. Um, but, you know, we try to help people like think about, oh, what is it that's going on for you at that moment? Everybody's looking at me. Everybody thinks I'm stupid. Everybody thinks I'm a failure. Yeah. And I go to the bottom of the garden and eat worms, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know how I'm answering your question now, but I've just gone on, on some other um, side tangent. But yes, yeah, so what we do is we'll, we'll help people talk about these examples, experiences that they're having, and we try and draw out these sort of implicit things that are going on, the, the, the music beneath the, the content, if you like. And then what we'll also help people do, again, is, is look at their development and try and figure out where it came from. Now, sometimes people say, well, well do, you know, can you actually be that certain? Well, no, of course we can't. But, you know, what we're doing in TA, and I think in a lot of psychotherapy, is that we help someone construct um, an explanation that works for them. You know, in sometimes it's not necessarily... It's not necessary for us to do some sort of like forensic historical deconstruction of things and say, ah, it was exactly at 27 minutes past five in on on the the the, the 14th of April in 1987 that you decided this. You know, that's it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're talking more about generalized um conclusions that people might come to, if that makes sense. So so that's partly how we do it. Um also, we're really interested so in, in helping people to, to look at what goes on between them and other people. So, you know, the, this idea that people repeat and replay their past is, is not a new one. You know, the, you know Freud and the, the psychoanalysts were, were, were thinking about this years ago. And, and in tier, we, we've kind of found uh, ways of operationalizing this and, and helping people to look at these repetitive patterns that go on between them and other people. So can I, can I introduce you to a really simple one now? Yeah, please do. So well, there's, there's one model that, that is used a lot, and it's called the drama triangle. Okay. So it's a way of mapping out um, what happens when people get caught up in a drama with each other. So it's got three points, and I'm going to kind of draw them in the air. Um, persecutor, res uh, persecu rescuer, perse rescuer, persecutor, and victim. There we go. I knew I'd get there in the end. I was trying to reverse it then. Um, so it's it's this idea. This was one of those absolute light bulb epiphany moments for me when I was doing the training. My mouth was like on the floor. I swear. So the idea is that when when stuff's happening between people, that they sometimes adopt um, a particular role. Um, now, for me, I was often in the rescuer role. You know, I'd like try and do things for the people. Um, this was one of the things I did, like a compulsive, do a compulsive hes, uh, helper and, and, and try and, like, I don't know, do things for people that they could do for themselves. And, you know, then what would sometimes happen, you know, I'm thinking of one friend in particular who I was always, like, jumping to their aid without being asked. And that was mm -hmm. a crucial thing in this, is I was doing stuff for them. And then when they get pissed off for me interfering and they'd start persecuting, then I'd go into a victim place and feel really hard done by and misunderstood. Mm, okay. You know, we see this all the time. Um, for, 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 for folks who are watching this, you know, just Google the drama triangle, have a look at it. And, you know, if you want to watch... Um, I know something on TV, a drama, a soap or something like that, or even one of the reality shows, you'll just see it happening in front of you. Um, so this is one of the things that we use is that we listen out for these patterns that people get into and, and try and help them understand what's going on in their relationships and then make different choices. Um, 
you know. So, like, you know, for example, people, you know, a really common one is for people to get caught up in these family, um, like, pointless arguments where one family member phones up and starts, you know, complaining about another one. So you say, oh, yes, that's terrible. And then the word gets back to the other person. Then they're phoning up and they're pissed off with you because you said this. Yeah, this sort of scenario is really, really common. And in, in TA, we'd say that, okay, so let's have a look at the drama triangle and what's going on. What's your part in this? What part are you playing? How are you contributing to this? And what can you do differently to step out of it? Because that's another thing in TA is we don't, we're not that keen on this idea that people necessarily are being sort of passive in their relationships. Now, obviously, again, there are exceptions to that, you know, people's abuse are treated really badly. But what we'll often look at is, you know, what are you doing in this situation? So, you know, sometimes when people are being, oh, let's take example, people are being passive, you know, it's like, well, you're not being assertive. You know, so that's your contribution to this. You know, it's like if, you know, people treat you badly if you allow them to. You know, or I think Eleanor Roosevelt said, you know, if you don't want people stand on you, then get up off the floor. You know, um, you know, I, I again, I accept it's it's not always as simple as that. You know, um, you know, power structures and, and privilege and all the rest of it can get in the way. Um, but but generally speaking, as an idea about self-empowerment, uh, and taking back responsibility, um, which very much links with the existentialist idea about freedom and responsibility, then TA is really keen on that. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so it seems that it's one of the most effective approaches out there for, I suppose, detecting these broad underlying patterns of our behavior in life and sort of, I suppose, articulating those and becoming conscious of those. Mm. So once, you know, once you are conscious of these these patterns and you know that you're doing this for a certain reason you know that's great to know but you know how then do we move from actually knowing it to actually changing it changing the script you know to one that's more empowering and actually adaptive in your current situation okay good question i mean some people would say that you never properly get rid of them you just get better at them you know they just get more you know more subtly and the sort of patterns that you get caught in with people yeah they're, they're, they're not as high stakes so i mean one thing that happened to me when i was really getting stuck into tas i really evaluated all of my relationships all my friendships and started thinking you know, this is not a good this is not good for me what do i get out of this you know i you know if i want you know i'm always one helping but what happens when when i want help oh there's no there you know so you know if you take this idea about the compulsive rescuer you know i don't do it compulsively now but i get paid for it you know so it's like about taking something that maybe is something that that we, we've given and and finding a way to use it constructively if that if that makes sense oh, um, totally totally and you know i don't want to let go of being a caring person i think it's really quite good and i think that you know we need lots of people like that but maybe not people who are doing it at their own expense people who are doing it in a way that's harmful or damaging to them so it's about being you know developing that capacity to, to balance it out with self-care so i think that what ta can help us do is develop more options it's not necessarily about taking something away from us but it's about developing options and choices um now you know some people would also sometimes it is about helping people change things you know one of the the most amazing things that that happens to me in my work as a psychotherapist is when people regain their sense of self-worth you know when, when people say do you know what i am valuable i am worthwhile and and magic happens then and sometimes people say things like that and it's like they've never felt that before you know that, that one one of the most wonderful things in my job is 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 just watching that process of transformation and you mentioned trauma earlier on and and one you know i do a lot of heavy trauma work like really really heavy stuff it's almost like it's the more extreme it is the more people are likely to come to me that's fine i i, I can deal with that and and something really profound happens in it and you know, people sometimes said to me, like, how, how can you listen to these stories? How can you listen to these stories of, of child abuse or, and of torture? Um, it's one of the things I do. Um, and and the, the thing that, that gets me through it is, is hearing about the tenacity of the human spirit. And how, you know, that people, it, it, just, it can get better, really. People can heal. People can recover. Um, that you know these horrific stories and it's like 
oh my God, that happened to you and you're still alive. You survived that. Do you know how strong you are? It's it's incredible to witness this. And when people have that that truth, that reality reflected back to them and they start to see it, then, then magic things happen. Um, it absolutely is a blessing. I think I've, I personally think I've got the best job in the world. Um, that's but, um, it's 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 really powerful stuff and it never ceases to make me feel humble that's incredible that's incredible um so another another big concept in ta is this idea of uh the basic life positions the four basic life positions could you maybe run us through through what they are as well and why they're important Sure. So this goes right back to the stuff I was talking about, about very, very early development in, in childhood. Um, this also links with um, um, attachment theory and the internal working model, if, you, if you're familiar with that concept. But basically, life positions, it's about answering the question, am I okay or am I not okay? Or in other words, am I good or bad? Am I worthwhile or not? Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's, am I okay yet or not okay? And what about you? Are you okay or not okay? So we, you know, if we've talked about this, I'm okay or not okay, you're okay or you're not okay, we've got four different combinations of that. And and the idea is that this sort of forms a sort of um basic orientation to how people experience themselves and experience other people, if that if that makes sense. Now, the the idea in, in T is that the, the, the healthy, uh, productive, constructive option is for people to develop a sense of I'm okay and you're okay. And we use that in TA to, to guide how we should relate to other people, how we should communicate, how we should structure our um, our relationships our, in, in work, in, in school, in, in our families and so on. It's about treating ourselves and other people with equal respect. I think that's a key thing. It's not about putting the other person before us, but it's not about putting ourselves before the other person. It's about we are equals in this. I'm okay and you're okay. Now, what often we see in therapy is, um, particularly again with people who like depression and anxiety, is a sense that I'm not okay, but you are. Other people are better than me. Other people have got all this sorted. Other people have got all this sussed. I mean, it's incredible the stuff that, that the ideas that people get in their head about others. You know, it's like somebody might be thinking they're, they're the only person who feels nervous when actually they don't realize that everybody else has got this stuff going on. They just hide it, you know, and of course they can't see that you've got it going on. Um, so that's the I'm not okay. You are equally, you know, we can also look down on people and you can take a stance of I'm I'm okay and you're not. Um, we often see that a lot in, in some of the sort of, um, should we say, more unsavory elements of the, the media. Um, when they sort of demonize other people. We've seen it a lot at the minute, you know, with the talking some of the sort of um polarized language that's going on about migrants, you know, as if they're the threat to society. You know, we're all we're all okay, but they're not. You know, we see in any of these kind of um, positions where people are othering someone else. Um, and of course, then there's a despairing position, uh, which is quite tempting sometimes, is this sense of I'm not okay and neither are you. It's all shit. It's all shit. The world's all terrible. Um, yeah, that's a sort of yeah, real despairing position. But as I was saying, TA is actually the sense that you know our birthright is a sense of our recognizing our fundamental okayness. I like this word okayness because it's not saying everything's great, everything's hunky dory. It's just okay. It's good enough to use language that's using um, used by Winnie Cobb. Good enough. That's all we need to be is good enough. Oh, I'm okay, and you are. And let's treat it like that. Let's treat each other like we're okay. And it's all going to work out okay in the end. I love that. So you could almost say the goal of this approach is to get people to that that sense of I'm basically okay and you're basically okay as well. And yeah. I think as well, something that came to mind whenever you were you were talking there was, you know, another thing from your TED talk. That's an, just thinking about it. <laughs> that's an incredibly useful what is it, 14 or 15 minutes worth watching. Um, another thing you bring up is this idea that you know, essentially we all we all feel ourselves to be the center of the universe, right? And that's our sensation of life. But I think life goes a hundred percent more smoother for you whenever you just realize that everybody is at the center of the universe for them. Just have that in your mind. You feel anxious. Ain't all about you. 
Exactly. And that takes the attention out of yourself and puts it on other people. And then you don't feel anxious then, which is the, the paradox of it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, so just to sort of, I suppose, wrap up, um, what was the other thing I was going to ask? So for this, for this particular summit, we're asking each person we interview for three books they recommend that every therapist should read. Um, when I ask you that question, what, what books come to mind, Mark? You're going to expect me to answer this now, aren't you? On and the I, spot. <laughs> and I'm going to want to give you like about 200 titles on this one. And um, okay. Um, I was only back to existentialism here now. Like I think, I think one book that everybody everybody should read. I'm using that word "should" very loosely because I hate it when people tell me you should. Um, is is "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl? I think that's one of the most profound things that's ever written. It's deeply distressing the first half of it when he's talking about his experience as a concentration camp, and profoundly liberating when he talks about how we we look for meaning. Um, so that's what I'd say for everybody. I'd say for psychotherapists or people in the mental health field, I'd say Irving Yalom's Existential Psychotherapy. That was a game changer for me in terms of thinking about, you know, you know what 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 goes on for people and this sort of like deeper level of just accepting the human condition um i suppose i ought to probably mention a ta book didn't i um although i'm a bit unsure about which one to go for on that i could say my own but that'd be a bit much wouldn't it really oh i'll tell you what as well amazing one is um louis cosolino's the neuroscience of psychotherapy you know, okay. you know, turn it back to the brain because it is all about the brain ultimately and, and, and how the brain operates and how, you know, um, this idea about neuroplasticity and how we our brain's constantly rewiring, um, which, which is based on fact. And this sort of really links with what we're talking about in psychotherapy that, that you know, that people can change. And, and within humanistic therapy, that people can make things better, that we, that, you know, in humanistic approaches, we say that everybody has this growth, this urge towards growth and healing and making things better. And we see that's exactly what happens in this concept of neuroplasticity, that we can utilize and harness this positive force. So, yeah, Louis Cosolino's um, Neuroscience Psychotherapy would be another one. No, that's that's three, Mark. That's three. Victor Frankel, Irvin Yalom, and Luke. Oh, there, you there you go. That'll do. I've done it then. Three of the heavyweights in the in the field. You know that what's going to happen though is all most of the rest of the evening now. I'm going to sit and go. Oh no, I should have said this one. <laughs> like, I, I'll probably think about dozens, but yeah, that that'll do for starters, I guess. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Well, Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today and learn a bit more about TA and your work and the incredible work that you're doing. Um, your own book. Where can people get it online? Um, you've got a couple of books written, is that right? Yeah, I've done two. Um, I did, wrote a book that's a sort of intermediate textbook on transaction analysis. Um, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but the second edition is coming out soon, so don't buy the first one if you want to get it. Um, it's called um, Transaction Analysis: 100 Key Points and Techniques. Um, and I wrote a book called Transaction Analysis for Depression. Um, that's not, I'm not working on the second edition of that though. So that can that's a treatment manual. That's sort of like for practitioners to 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 get a sense about how they could maybe use TA in practice. And it's based on on the research I do for my PhD. Fantastic, fantastic, right? Well, I'll let you go. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you, and I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you.